Now, today we're starting a new series. We uh, finished up the book of 1 Thessalonians last week, and as I mentioned many months ago, actually at the start of this year, uh, once we finished up 1 Thessalonians, we were going to jump right into 2 Thessalonians because the book of 2 Thessalonians wasn't written that long after the book of 1 Thessalonians. In fact, it was written just a few months after the book of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, when the Apostle Paul was writing this book to the church at Thessalonica, and I'll give you some additional details about this in just a moment, the Apostle Paul um, wanted to help the church at Thessalonica to understand the victory that Christ secures for us, and also some of the things that he's got in store for us on the historical timetable. So we'll be talking about those things, but if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Thessalonians 1, and as we start off this series together, we're only going to be looking at the first four verses today. So it's really a very short section, but, um, but what I want us to notice as we look at this is the concept of spiritual maturity and the metric that we're given here that actually gives us three ways that we could test our spiritual maturity. And I'll show you what I mean by that in just a minute. So we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to begin with verse 1, and I'm just going to read down to verse 4. This is what it states. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at your word together this morning. And Lord, as we do so, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and that you would help us to understand what your word is revealing to us. We pray that you'd help us to grow in our walk with you. We pray that our minds and our hearts would be open to the teaching of your word. And we pray that by your grace that we would grow and that we would mature as your followers. Lord, we're grateful for the privilege that it is to know you through your Son, and we're grateful for the admonitions that were given in a portion of Scripture like this. So we commit this time to you now. We thank you for the blessing that it is to be able to look at your word together, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me give you a little background, a little bit of a recap of what was taking place as this uh, content was being communicated. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, which we just finished looking at last week, you have the Apostle Paul expressing great joy for the ways in which he could see the church at Thessalonica growing. They were absolutely growing. They were progressing in faith. That's a theme that you actually see all throughout the course of that letter. And Paul had been concerned about this because his ability to remain with them due to persecution uh, was, was limited. And he was concerned that that was going to have a negative impact on their spiritual growth because he wasn't able to spend very much time with them, counseling them, discipling them, training them. He planted the church, but then very soon after had to go. He had to leave town because of the threat of death. But when word of their continual progress reached his ears, he was very curious about how they were doing, and when word of their progress reached his ears, Paul was overjoyed. And so he wrote that first letter to them. 
And he did that to encourage the church. He also wanted to give them additional instruction so that they would know some additional things that maybe they were not yet aware of. Now, sometime after that first letter was delivered to them, um, I don't know if it was soon after, uh, it had to be soon after because 2 Thessalonians was, was written uh, just a few months later, but I don't know if it was immediately after receiving that first letter or you know, just a little bit after. I don't know exactly what took place, but the church started behaving strangely. They started behaving in a way that was puzzling and a bit confusing, and it appears that there were some people in the church at Thessalonica that were misinterpreting some of the teaching that they had received about, specifically about the future return of Christ. They were puzzled about these things. They were confused about these things. And it's also believed, and it very well may have been the case, that some false teachers were now corrupting good doctrine in their midst and were producing some confusion inside that church in the context of the church, but either way, some of the some of the people that were part of the church at Thessalonica had gotten to the point where some of them were they were just starting to quit their jobs, they were abdicating their responsibilities in a lot of spheres, and they were failing to redeem the time that they had been blessed with, because they really did not expect to be here much longer. And they thought, you know, if I'm not going to be here much longer, do I really need to go to work? You know, and now. We can't be too critical of them, right? Because don't you think that human nature would kind of look at this and say, like, do I really need to do this? But some of them were taking this to an extreme, and it was having some unhealthy effects on the church. Because in addition to quitting their jobs, they were abdicating other responsibilities, responsibilities that we as believers have to one another, responsibilities that we have to our families. There were people in the church that were abdicating some of these roles and responsibilities, and they weren't really making the best use of the time that the Lord had blessed them with because they didn't think they were going to be here much longer. And so instead of using that as a moment to say, okay, I only have this much time, I better use it to the fullest, they took the opposite approach. And they said, I only have this much time, I guess I'll sit on my hands right? And there's two approaches you can take to life, and that pretty well draws the line between them. They were taking the latter. It was a big concern in the church. Now, Paul was in the city of Corinth when he wrote this letter to the Thessalonians. And like I said earlier, it was written just a short time after that first letter was written. But in this second letter, and we're just looking at the introduction to it today, but in this second letter, what we're going to see in the coming weeks is that Paul goes into great detail about the return of Christ because he wants to clarify some of these things that the church is obviously not fully understanding. But he also goes into some detail about some of the other historical events that will be taking place at the time of the return of Christ. And he also makes a point, and you'll see this as we go through these chapters, he makes a point to encourage the church to understand what it looks like to apply the teaching of Scripture to their lives more accurately while finding confidence and resting in the victory that Jesus Christ secures on our behalf. So let me say one more thing before we we kind of pick apart the text here together. Some of the issues that this church was dealing with, come, those, it comes down to spiritual maturity or the level of spiritual maturity that they were at. And you'll see that as we kind of develop some of these thoughts. But I want you to be asking a question of yourself even before we pick apart primarily two verses that we're going to analyze together in our time today. And the question is this that I want you to be asking yourself. 
How spiritually mature do you believe you are at present? If you had to assess your own spiritual maturity, how spiritually mature are you convinced that you are right now at present? And maybe I could even throw this question out there. Is that a question you've ever even asked yourself? You know, have you ever asked yourself, you know, am I spiritually mature or am I at a season where I'm spiritually immature or am I, you know, the, you're either spiritually mature, spiritually immature, or spiritually dead, right? That's really the three options. We're not really talking about the, the latter option there today, but we're primarily talking about the idea of spiritual maturity and spiritual immaturity. So where do you think you are on that scale? And I bring that up because when we look at these opening verses of 2 Thessalonians 1 that we just read together, and I'll reread two of them for us in just a moment, but I see three simple questions that we could ask ourselves that actually help us test our level of spiritual maturity. Now, now Paul doesn't phrase them as questions in this passage, but you can ask the data or the content of what he's saying. You can rephrase it to yourself in an applicational way as a question. And so I actually want us to do that today because it will help us individually in our own mind and our own heart test our level of spiritual maturity. And there's three examples that Paul gives us here that show us how that can be done. And the first question is this. We see this in verse 3. Is your faith growing? Is your faith growing? Look at what it says in verse 3. It says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Now, let me pause there for just a second. So there are people in my life that I am extremely thankful for. Some of them are right here in this room right now. They're the type of people that serve as examples to me um, in all kinds of areas. Uh, They're people that remind me regularly that they value me. People that in general tend to show kindness to my family. So these are people that I really, truly, genuinely appreciate. And it's very clear when you look at how Paul speaks to the church at Thessalonica that the Thessalonian Christians were people that Paul was genuinely thankful for, possibly for some of the same reasons that I just expressed, that I'm thankful for my biological family, my church family, many people that the Lord's brought into my life. But I also think Paul was thankful for the church at Thessalonica because he could see what the Lord was doing in their lives. And it was a great example to him and to others. And one of the most obvious pieces of evidence that the Lord was at work within them was the fact that their faith was growing. And I love how the Apostle Paul describes that growth when you actually look at his words here. You know, he doesn't just say that their faith was gradually improving, although that would be a compliment, right? If someone said to to you that your, your faith seems to be gradually improving, I would think that that's a compliment. And I do think that that's a compliment if somebody would say something like that. But he he doesn't say it that way. In fact, the way he describes their faith here in this portion of Scripture, he says that their faith was growing abundantly. That's his description of them. It was like they were on a rocket ship of faith. Their faith was growing abundantly. These were people that were on fire for Jesus Christ. These were people that were extremely enthusiastic about their, their faith in Christ. In every way, with great evidence that was both visible and invisible, Their faith was making progress. So again, we're trying to be applicational as we take a look at this portion of Scripture because we want to not just know the data, but we also want to live this out. So the question is, where is your faith at right now? Is it growing? Has it stagnated? 
Are you even questioning whether faith was there to begin with? These are things worth wrestling with. Is your faith growing? Is it stagnated? Was it ever there to begin with? I recently received two notes of, it, it was actually kind of sad news, not, not trying to be a downer, but um, I received uh, just kind of two elements of sad news. One was about somebody that uh, was a college student who about 10 years ago used to volunteer here in the church with several ministries, and uh, I was informed this week that she's not really walking with the Lord at this point. And so I'm saying that just uh, anonymously, you'd never be able to figure it out from what I'm saying, but I would say that so that you would pray for someone that maybe you don't even know, who about 10 years ago was part of our church fellowship and right now seems to be in a very bad spot in regard to her faith. I was also talking to a friend of mine this week, and uh, she asked for for prayer for her husband, and I I said, yeah, I'd be happy to pray for your husband. And, um, and I asked her, I said, where's his walk with the Lord right now? And this is how she described it. She said, it's non-existent. Non-existent was her description. His, his, his walk with the Lord is non-existent. Now, I bring those examples up because those were two things that were brought to my attention during the course of this past week. But when you look at what Scripture tells us about the work that Christ is trying to do in your life and my life, His desire for us once He saves us is that we, won't, that we won't revert back to a worldly mindset or the life of sin that we were once tied to. You know, I was once tied to those things. I was very much, my mind, my heart was all wrapped up in that stuff. And, and you could probably think back to a season of your life where you were feeling and experiencing the same type of things. But when Christ saves us, He doesn't want us to go back to that. And it can be tempting at times to go back to that. But he pulled us out of it. He wants us to progress. He wants us, well, he's, first of all, he set us free from those chains. So he doesn't want us tethered to those things any longer. And he's presently empowering us to walk in the freedom that he secured for us when he atoned for our sin on the cross. And I want to show you two portions of Scripture that make reference of that. The first is in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, I was thinking, as I selected that scripture to show to us today, thought, I, th- I think I refer to this scripture a lot, just in my own personal study, my own personal devotions, but also in my preaching. I've never done a statistic to kind of, or like a study to go back and see how many times I've made reference to this, but it's actually a portion of scripture I think about a lot because it very succinctly describes the life that Christ wants you and I to be living right now. He says, you know, for Galatians 5.1, again, it says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And that's not freedom to do whatever you want. It's freedom from when you used to do whatever you want. You know, it's freedom to live in the liberty that Christ has given us to walk by faith in Him in the midst of a dark and, uh, and difficult season. He set us free so that we don't go back to a yoke of slavery, so that we don't go back to chains, so that we don't go back to being tethered to unwise and unhealthy things. Another portion of Scripture I want to point out to us is this. 1 Corinthians 6.12, it says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And what Paul was saying to the Corinthians in that particular context, he's like, yeah, essentially, you could, you could look at day-to-day life and you could say, well, I could do this, it's like, or I could do that. It's like, yeah, absolutely, you could do that, and you could do that, and maybe even the law would permit you to make this bad decision or this unwise choice, 
there are certain things that you could do that there's no law necessarily uh, against. So you could say, yeah, it's lawful for me to do this. It's lawful for me to do, to do that. But is it wise? Is it Christ-like? Is it godly? Is it going to become something that enslaves you all over again, even after Christ has paid for your freedom? Are you going to live like you're free? Are you going to live like you're in chains? Which one do you want to live in? Or which state do you want to live in? Don't go back to the things that Jesus shed his blood to rescue you out of. Don't go back to the things that Christ redeemed you from. And that's what Paul was advising the church. That's what Paul was encouraging believers of all generations ultimately to understand as the Holy Spirit inspired him to pen these things down. And this is the type of thing that he was trying to encourage the church at Thessalonica to embrace, but it's also the type of thing that I think anyone that's trying to grow in faith needs to understand and recognize. And it was brought to my mind again this week as I gave you those examples, because in both of those examples, you have people who at one point were professing faith in Jesus Christ, who have now gone back to a yoke of slavery. They've given up the liberty they had in Christ, and they've they've selected what the world terms as freedom, but really it ends up being another form of being in bond, you know, in bondage, right? So practically speaking, if if we want to be somebody who's growing in faith, if you want to grow in your faith, if I want to grow in my faith, is there an approach to life that might actually help us grow abundantly in faith, like Paul was saying that the church at Thessalonica was doing. They were growing abundantly in faith. Is there an approach that we could take that would help us to grow abundantly in faith so that we don't revert back to a depressive state of worldliness? Is there a practical approach that you and I could utilize that might be helpful uh, to us in that process? I think there is. Now, I'm going to share with you a few things that are helpful to me, but I don't want to present this as if it's the exhaustive list of five things. But I have five things that I'm going to mention to you real quick, rapid fire. And uh, if this list is helpful to you and you want this list, remind me afterward. I'll, I'll be happy to send you an email with it. But these are five real quick things that are helpful to me when I'm trying to invest in my faith and grow in my faith. When I see that Paul describes that the church at Thessalonica was growing abundantly, that's what I want for me. That's what I want for you. And so there are things that I'm trying to do that are conscious decisions that I believe help produce that. Here are five things that are are helpful to me. I hope they'll be helpful to you. The first is this. Hold whatever you believe up to the light of Scripture. Hold whatever you believe up to the light of Scripture. If what you believe, if what I believe doesn't line up with what Scripture actually teaches, well, it needs to be moved along. It can't be something consuming space in my mind and in my heart because it's going to deceive me and lead to a form of mental slavery or spiritual slavery that I don't want to go back to, that Christ has freed me from that I once lived in. I don't want to go back to it. And there's all sorts of mindsets and there's all sorts of philosophies that are being thrown at you and being thrown at me rapid fire every day if you turn on the news. You know, all sorts of things are coming at you, you know, and you look at that and you think, all right, what is true and what's in error? So what I'm trying to do and what I'd encourage you to do is to hold up whatever we believe to the light of Scripture. If it doesn't align with what Scripture teaches, it doesn't belong in my mind, and it doesn't belong into my heart. Second thing, and it's kind of similar, but it's more defensive, and that's this. Filter your mental, emotional, and spiritual diet. So so you're only inviting things to influence you that convey the truth of the gospel. So I'm saying filter these things. 
Meaning, look at the type of things that are bombarding you, right? We live in the information age. I'm somebody that, that uses, like, media all the time. You know, I mean, I, I like... I, I love consuming podcasts. That's one of my favorite things. I love consuming content on YouTube. And, and uh, you know, those are kind of like my primary information sources other than books and, and blogs and all sorts of things that I'm reading. But I'm always consuming information. I, I have like a steady desire for it, a steady diet of it. But what I've been learning to do is to filter that, to filter the, my mental, emotional, and spiritual diet so that I'm inviting things into my mind and into my life that align with the gospel, but I'm filtering things out that don't. So that impacts my entertainment choices, and I try and be pretty strict about that. Um, it, it impacts other things as well. But I don't want things in my mind and my heart that don't belong there. And if I can filter that, I want to filter it. Third thing that I find helpful as I'm trying to grow in faith is this, and you're doing it right now, don't neglect to assemble with other believers who will invest in you, encourage you, and hold you accountable. You know, those people need to be in your life. Those people need to be in my life. There are people in my life that hold me accountable and invest in me and encourage my faith. And I've learned that there's only so far I can go on my own. And, um, you know, Scripture even warns us, don't neglect assembling together with those people that will do that favor for you because your spiritual growth will be genuinely stunted if those people are not part of your life. A fourth thing that matters, and it's hard to do at times, but it helps, it really helps if you're trying to live in freedom from the bondage of sin, confess your sins regularly to the Lord and quickly and I'd also encourage you to take one extra step. Find somebody else in your life that you trust that you could also confess things to. It might be a short list of people you would feel comfortable doing that with, but it's nice when you have that. People that you know keep your, you know, your confession in a, in a lockbox. You know, they're not going to confess your confession all around. You know? um, but I'll tell you what, one of the things that I find extremely helpful is just recognizing the Lord knows what's going on in my mind and in my life. He sees all things internal and external. I can't hide anything from Him, so I might as well just admit if I'm going in a direction that's unhealthy. And you know what ends up happening if you admit those things? If you admit that, it, it steals the allure of them. If you just admit it, it's very hard to hide from the, the conviction that you begin to feel when you find yourself immediately confessing it over to the Lord. The Lord kind of takes that, that, you know, the, you, that desire that you had to go in a direction that was unhealthy, He takes it away so that you can walk in the liberty and in the freedom that He has, that He's offered to us. And the fifth is this. We talked about this last week. Pray without ceasing. Just be in a constant state of communion with the Lord and communication with the Lord. Pray without ceasing. That's, that's the, my go-to list right now. And obviously there are things that could be added to this, but these are some things that help me grow in my faith. So if that's helpful to you, I offer that as a suggestion, knowing that there are more things that we could also emphasize. But those are some things that the Lord brings to my mind regularly. And so the first test question, really, you didn't know you're going to be tested today in church, but a little, it's a quiz, all right? It's a quiz, all right? 
But the first quiz question, you know, if you're trying to grow in spiritual maturity, ask yourself, is your faith growing? So Paul, again, he says of the church at Thessalonica, their faith was growing abundantly. Second question is this, is your love for others increasing? Is your love for others increasing? I'm going to reread verse 3, because this was also found in verse 3, but this is what it says in verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. That's what he says here at the end of verse 3, the love for every, he says, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So is your love for others increasing? I was involved in a group discussion specifically related to prayer this past week. And the people that were participating in the discussion were invited to ask this or, or to answer this question. And the question was this, what prompts you to pray? What's your trigger? Like what, what prompts you to pray? What makes you think, I need to pray right now? What, what prompts you to pray? And so as we were discussing different things, different things were suggested, but one of the participants suggested the word, he just said people. He said, people prompt me to pray. And then I asked him to elaborate on that. When he elaborated, he said, because he finds people challenging to deal with. Now, I know none of us can relate with what he was saying, so I'm just using his example. I know you've probably never dealt with challenging people in your own life, neighborhood, family, whatever. By the way, my father is up here visiting today, and he would tell you, I never once challenged his authority as a teenager. Don't, please don't laugh. This is being recorded, Father. Um, but people can be challenging, right? And this is what this man said in, in that prayer time. He said, people just in general prompt me to pray because he, he said he finds people challenging to deal with. And then he also said, and people often break his heart. And he gave some examples of people that had broken his heart. And so he said, I got to be honest with you. I, he said, I, I frequently feel prompted to pray for others after I'm interacting with them. After I'm interacting with them, that's one of my prayer prompts, he said. And I thought that was interesting. But isn't it interesting to consider that in this life, other people tend to be one of our greatest sources of joy and also one of our greatest sources of pain. People tend to be one of our greatest sources of joy and at the same time one of the greatest sources of pain. And you could be still talking about the same people. You can be the same exact people. In a very real way, it is risky to interact with others. And I'm sure we've all been tempted to avoid others from time to time because maybe we're fearful of the pain that they might cause us. But if we avoid them for too long, we start to realize that there could be even more pain in prolonged isolation. And the Christian life is not a solitary life. Our union with Christ also unites us as one body with other Christians. We're all united together as one body. And Christ has shown His body great love. And he reveals in his word that one of the most powerful ways that people will come to know that we are his followers is if we genuinely love one another. It actually comes up all throughout scripture. You see that admonition to genuinely love one another. It's phrased in multiple different ways. You see Paul referencing this here in regard to the church at Thessalonica. But you also see words that Jesus said. Let me give you an example from John chapter 13. In John 13, it says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. By this, 
Jesus said, people, he said, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So you have Paul, when he looks at the church at Thessalonica here, he looks at them and he compliments them because their love for one another was increasing. So their faith is abounding, their love is increasing, and I'm assuming, and I think this is a very safe assumption, that this must have been something that they were making very obvious in a variety of ways, and I'm sure that it was having a spiritual impact on even unbelievers that were living in that city as well, because this demonstration of love is a tool that the Lord frequently uses to open unbelieving eyes to begin seeing the unconditional nature of His love for us. When He sees you and I operating with unconditional love for one another, and people know that we all test each other, right? People, we can love them, but we could also be hurt by them. It's a risk to interact. But when you can overcome some of those fears or overcome some of those offenses and still show love, that shows that there is something very radically different that's taken place within you because the natural response is retaliation when people hurt you. But when you can express something that's genuine love, even to someone who may have hurt you, as a powerful testimony to this world that you follow Jesus Christ and he's done a radical form of transformation in your life. This is a tool that the Lord frequently uses to open up the eyes of those who as of yet don't believe. And the love Paul was praising the Thessalonians for showing, it wasn't just a warm affection between friends. It was more than that. It was the joyful and sacrificial giving of oneself for the benefit of others. Joyfully and sacrificially giving themselves for the benefit of others. Believers were meeting each other's needs. They were protecting one another from forms of persecution, and they were dealing with legit forms of persecution in that context. And they were welcoming one another into each other's lives. They were doing all of these things for each other, and Paul described their love as something that was increasing. Now, love sounds wonderful right up to the point where you're asked to put it into practice. And love sounds ideal right up to the point that it's tested. So how would you describe <clears throat> your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ right now? How would you describe your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ right now? Is there maybe a way that the Lord encourages you to show love for your brothers and sisters in Christ that at present you may, you may be resisting or avoiding? And what's holding you back from showing it more and more and more? And so the test question, the second one that I'm phrasing as a question, I think it's useful to phrase it as a question, is your love for others increasing? You know, if we want to grow spiritually mature, that's something that should be seen in our lives. Our love for one another should be increasing. Third question, and the final question I'll ask today is this. Is your steadfastness continuing. Is your steadfastness continuing? Look at verse 4. There it says this, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. It's a beautiful statement. Very quick sentence, but it's a beautiful sentence. Their steadfastness was continuing. Is our steadfastness continuing? You know, since becoming a Christian, and I'll even say this, particularly since becoming a pastor, I always wondered if, if there was going to be a day, or maybe even when there was going to be a day, 
when I would see the church experiencing overt forms of persecution in our own country, I always wondered if and when I would see a day where that sort of thing was happening. Now, there's certainly been examples of that during the course of my lifetime that I've seen in other places in the world, and it's tragic, and we pray for believers who are dealing with persecution, but I have to tell you, in recent days, very recent days, over the past month, in fact, I've been watching the selective treatment and the overt threats that churches in certain areas of our country and certain corners of our country have been receiving, and it's not pretty. I read about a church building that just a few weeks ago, maybe you saw this too, it was burnt down, it was straight up burnt down uh, because people didn't want the church gathering together, so they burnt the church down. And I was like, oh, that's lovely. That solves things, right? Um, I read about believers being threatened with arrest for having even a small gathering and for, um, you know, I mean, I I won't go into all the details, but I mean, you know, people gathering together and people banging on the doors and threatening them with the rest. I I read about a a church um, that they had gathered together. This one actually cracked me up a little bit. I snickered at this, all right? So forgive me if this seems vindictive. I don't really care if it does, but please forgive me if it does. Um, But a church... Um, had gathered, and somebody had decided to have all their cars towed. But the church found out that this was about to happen, so they parked in a different place. And so the towing company actually towed all the cars from the neighborhood of people that weren't even part of the church. And then the church finished their meeting and came out and discovered the street was cleared, and all the neighbors were upset because the city had come and towed all their cars and not the church's cars. I just got a kick out of that. So, By the way, since we've been meeting, all your cars were towed. I know that's awkward but we have Sloppy Joes for lunch. Um, I I even heard a a couple stories. Now, thankfully, they were released, but I heard a couple stories of pastors being arrested in our country over the past month. And I thought, wow, I always wondered when I'd see that. This year, there it was. And if I'm honest, I actually think that that's only a taste of what's to come. I keep wondering, will I make it to retirement before being arrested? I don't know. I hope, I hope you'll still allow me to serve as your pastor if that happens, as long as it's for a good reason. If I do something dumb, you're off the hook. You don't have to hold me to anything. But, you know, again, I look at that and I think to myself, okay, I doubt that this is the only time that I'm going to see that during my lifetime. Now, I hope I'm wrong, but I actually think it foreshadows something. We'll see if I'm right or wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. The Thessalonian church that Paul addressed in this letter, I bring that up because the Thessalonian church at their very time They were experiencing these kinds of threats right from the day the church was founded. Right from day one, they dealt with it. In fact, they had to usher and they insisted, the believers insisted that Paul leave town because they were afraid people were going to kill him. And so they said, you're too valuable to the cause, Paul. Paul, You've got to get you out of town so you can plant a church somewhere else. We've got to get you out of here. And he probably would have stayed, but they insisted, get out of here. And that's why he had to leave so abruptly. But from the day it was founded, that church in Thessalonica, was dealing with persecution. It was a very wealthy city, and there were people in that city who wanted the church removed, executed, or arrested. And I think that their persecutors would have been content with any one of those three options, but there were people that wanted to see that happen in that very day. But a a very interesting thing happens to the church when it's persecuted. And I want you to think about this for just a second. When a church is persecuted, and look at this throughout history, it happens every single time, 
When the church is persecuted, it grows nice and big. And it becomes particularly strong. And believers start to weigh what really matters to them in this world. And false brothers are quickly weeded out of the fellowship when the going gets tough. And again, there's, there's historical examples of this happening all throughout the course of the world, and there are present-day examples of this phenomenon happening in all places around the world that we could look at and learn from as well. Persecution is terrible, but I'll tell you what, the Lord delights in taking what men mean for evil and flipping it around on its head and using it for good. And He does it all the time. And He's done it historically, and He does it in our very day as well. And it should be noted that the Thessalonians were steadfast in the midst of their persecution. So steadfast, in fact, that, the, that Paul began boasting about them to other churches. Now, he doesn't t- tend to make a habit of doing that. But of this church, he bragged about them. He boasted about them. You know, the, the, the way like a parent brags about your kid's good grades or their sports achievements or, or the fact that they got their full, first full-time job or, or, you know, the fact that anything good happens in your child's life. He, he was a spiritual father to them, and he just looked at them, and he's like, I got to brag about my kids here i got to brag about them. And he bragged about this church. And he just talked about how they just continued to grow. And they were so steadfast in their walk with the Lord. In their afflictions, Paul was, was emphasizing the fact that they turned to Jesus, that they trusted Jesus to see them through. In their moments of persecution, they remembered that this was only for a season. And I hope you'll remember that if you ever endure any form of persecution, whether it be mild or severe. Remember, remind yourself of the fact only for a season. This isn't something that's long-lasting. Just for a season, just for a blip. And a glorious future in the presence of Christ awaits all who truly believe in Christ. Trials and tests show what a person is really made out of. So don't despise your times of testing. Don't despise your times of trial, because the Lord will use those things to bolster the depth of your faith, and He'll use those things to put your faith on display for others to see and learn from, and be inspired by. I believe that in His power, He'll make you steadfast in your walk with Him. He'll empower you also not to adopt this world's way of thinking as your own. And I also think He'll empower um, His church to be built, that He'll build His church one person at a time, no matter the opposition that comes against His people. I love what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 16. Take this to heart today. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, it says this. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus said that in a conversation with Peter. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Isn't that a beautiful statement that Christ makes that we can glean from and be blessed by? So let me say this as we finish up this morning. As Paul opens this second letter to the Thessalonians, and again, we only looked at just a few short verses today. There's a lot more content in this book that we're going to get to in coming weeks. But even just as he opens this up, don't you see kind of just the richness of what he's trying to point our hearts toward as the Holy Spirit inspired him to pen these things down? I really appreciate the words he speaks here. I find them challenging when we don't glaze over them when we look at them and think about what does it look like to actually apply these things to our lives. He's giving us a metric that we can use in very practical ways to test the depth of our spiritual maturity, to test whether we're still at a season of immaturity or whether we're growing to maturity. Is our faith growing? 
Is our love for others increasing? Is our steadfastness in all circumstances continuing? By the grace of Jesus, I hope that it is. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at your word together this morning. And Lord, as we do so, we do so mindful of the fact that that you are wonderful to us. You are kind to us. You're good to us. You desire that we experience the freedom that you have secured for us. And so, Lord, we pray that by your grace that we would walk in the freedom that you've given to us, that we wouldn't go back to the bonds of of the slavery of sin that we once embraced. We don't want to do that. We want to follow you. We want to honor you. Lord, we know that we're not perfect. You're perfect. We're not. We struggle in all sorts of areas. We're a work in progress. Your Your word makes that abundantly clear. We recognize that. But Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you're patient with us, and you give us what we need to grow, and you give us time to grow. So Lord, by your grace, we pray that we would grow in spiritual maturity, that we wouldn't falter in infancy, that we wouldn't be people who claim to have known you for years, but yet have made no meaningful progress in our faith. Lord, we want to have the the type of things that are, are ample descriptions of the Thessalonians be able to be used as descriptors and descriptions of us as well. So Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would accomplish that work in our hearts and in our lives and that we would testify to our genuine love for you as we love one another for your glory. Thank you, Father, for reminding us of of these things today as we've looked at this portion of your word. And thank you in advance for the things that you'll continue to teach us as we spend time in the coming weeks studying this small book from your word. Help us to apply these truths to our lives, we pray. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.